Now, I don't know uh, about you all, I don't know your church background, but I grew up in a church uh, very similar to this one, very similar to South Lake. We <clears throat> worshiped about the same, we, we took communion every week, we had a sermon. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, about the rowdiest that we ever got was, was kind of clapping on the offbeats during songs at times. That was, uh, you know, but you can imagine then, so when, when I went to college, uh, Ozark Christian College and uh, Bible College, and I went, one of my assignments was to worship with a Pentecostal congregation one week. You can imagine uh, what that would have maybe been like for me. My friend James and I, we were in ministry at the time, and so we went on a Sunday evening service to venture into the unknown together, and uh, at first, it kind of started out like every other church, you know, little country church, about 50 people, very welcoming, very friendly, and uh, it started just about like every other church service I'd ever been to, and about the middle of the second song, they stopped the song, right in the middle, they said, you know what, we know that no one sings this song like Miss Beulah sings this song. Miss Beulah, why don't you get on up here? And Miss Beulah, she kind of, she's an older lady, kind of walked slowly to the stage, and once Miss Beulah took over that song, things got hopping in there. You know, the preacher started running around the congregation, people joining in. This guy, he had to be pushing 90s, doing like, like you do up-downs, you know, for football practice. I mean, the preacher's pushing people down in the seats. I thought the lady next to me was having a stroke. But, I mean, things got crazy when Miss Beulah got on the stage. Now, I'm not here to critique Pentecostal theology this morning, but I do want to ask you, what does it mean for you to worship? What does worship look like to you? Maybe you think of song services or being in church, or maybe you grew up in a church where Miss Beulah got the room hopping and preachers were pushing people down in their chairs. I don't know what it looks like, but I do know that as we've continued throughout this series, we look at David, this series we've been in after God's own heart, looking at who David is as this king of Israel. We know that David was a man of worship. I think his heart for worship is one of the things that we see from David over and over again in any circumstance that David finds reason to worship. As we kind of get into this part this morning, some time has passed, and so I want to catch you up in where we've been just briefly. Last we left David chronologically, we saw that he was on the run from King Saul. King Saul this was at this murderous pursuit to take David out of the picture. Uh, and so David was on the run, hiding in caves, showing his integrity uh, and respecting God's anointed in Saul, but knowing that he would be the next king. David had been anointed as the next king all the way back in 1 Samuel 13, but some time was going to pass before he would ascend the throne. And so as we transition this morning from 1 Samuel, where we've been, to 2 Samuel, where we'll be in the next few weeks, we see that now that point has come. David has assumed the throne. Saul is ultimately, at the end of 1 Samuel, killed by the Philistines, these kind of continual enemies of Israel. And so after that, kind of the usual political upheavals take place in a transition of power. We see that there are rivals for the throne, that there are political upheavals. But ultimately, by chapter 5, David has largely assumed the kingship. He has become king over all 12 tribes of Israel. And I think really life is good for David at this point. I think this is, as we'll see, kind of the sweet spot of his kingship. So far, he has demonstrated himself to be a man of courage and a man of integrity. And now, this morning, we see him as specifically a man of worship. I think in addition to David's faithfulness to God, his continual pursuit of God, that he never turned toward another God or turned away from God when times were tough, I think in addition to those things, what makes David described as a man after God's own heart is his heart for worship. If you know your Bible as well, you know that David is just, by the core of who he is, a worshiper. 
Of the 150 psalms that we have, David wrote nearly half. He wrote 73 of those psalms. Some of them he wrote as he tended sheep in a field. Some as he was on the run from his enemies. Some as he was just overcome with praise for God. Some in his deepest moments of repentance and lament. We see that he worships God for his sovereignty, for his justice, for his deliverance, for his protection, for hearing his prayers, and just sometimes for just being who God is. David just loved in his worship to draw near to God. One of the Psalms that he writes, Psalm 27, he says this, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David says he desires to dwell with God, to be in his house, to be in his presence. And I'm guessing as much as you might love being here on a Sunday morning, nobody has at the top of their wish list spend all the days of my life in church. But I do hope that at some point, at some moment, you can remember a time where you had an experience in worship where you were just overcome by the presence of God. And this worship, this kind of worship is about drawing nearer to God. Not just about an emotional response that we might have, but about those moments of transcendence where we just see and feel God more clearly. We come more fully into his presence. David describes it this way in Psalm 16, another psalm he wrote. He said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. One of my friends, Luke Proctor, that I'm collaborating in this series with one of my preacher friends, he said it this way. He said, the best thing for you is to draw near to God. That's what we want for you. Our dream isn't just to get the church full of people. Our dream is to get people full of God. And that's what worship is about. And this is what David is pursuing as he is now establishing the kingdom over Israel. You see, in David's time, God's presence, the place in all the world where you could be closest to God was the tabernacle. Before the temple was built, God had his people worship in the tabernacle, this kind of tent that was an earthly reflection of heavenly realities. And in the deepest part of this tabernacle, and later the temple, is the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll recognize a box that looks something like this, this kind of ark, this box that, that had special moments of Israel's history inside. And that it was claimed to be God's throne on earth, that he was seated between those two angels, those cherubim on the top. The ark was God's established presence on earth during this period. It was like his earthly throne. Wherever the ark was, that was where God was assumed to be. Except by the time of David, the ark wasn't in the tabernacle. And so maybe you're wondering, where was it? To answer that, we have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. In 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are engaged in battle with the Philistines. We see that as a common reoccurrence throughout these books. And the battle isn't going very well for them. As the Israelites, in a moment of their own supposed brilliance, decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, almost like a good luck charm. Things aren't going well, let's bring God's throne with us. And of course, that's not going to go very well for them because anytime you try to manipulate God's presence for your own advantage, it's not going to go well. And so the Israelites in this moment are massacred. 30,000 of them fall in battle that day. And on top of that, the Philistines capture the ark. They take it back to their country and place it in the temple of their pagan god, Dagon. Well, the next day, the Philistines wake up. They go to worship in their temple. And this statue of Dagon, this idol, has fallen on his face before the ark of God. 
You think that's weird. They put him back up. They go back the next day. They come back. Next morning, they come back. Again, he has fallen on his face, but this time his head and his hands have broken off. Not only this, but people in the surrounding area are suddenly being infected with this plague of tumors. And so, of course, the Philistines make connect, you know, two and two, and they want nothing to do with this ark anymore. Get it out of here. First Samuel 6, verse 7, it says, that they said, now then, get a new cart, a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way. So they put the ark on a cart. They slap the cows in the behind. Miraculously, they wander all the way back to Israel. They find their, uh, find their way back. And of course, the Israelites are pumped in this moment. You know, the ark has come back. They thought it was lost forever. And in this moment, they begin to celebrate. They begin to make sacrifices. Except 70 of them get a little too curious. 70 people want to make sure the ark has come back with all the goods still inside. Of course, they would have known, or at least they should have known, that this was a big no-no. And so they're struck dead. The Bible doesn't say that their faces melted off like the Nazis and Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it, it doesn't say that it doesn't either. So I'll leave that up to your interpretation. And even still, though, what is striking in this instance is how little they understand God's presence in this ark. I mean, first they lose the Ark of the Covenant by treating it like it's a lucky rabbit's foot. And then they miss how serious it is to come in the presence of the living God. This should have led them to bring back the Ark to the center of their religious lives. But instead, they just leave it. 1 Samuel 7 says they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. All the while, while Saul is king, the representation of God's throne on earth is left on a hill in some dude's house. And so when David becomes king, he wants to start fresh. He wants to turn a new page. He, they, they are going to be a people who draw near to God and worship. And so they decide to dust the ark off, to get it out of storage, and to bring it where it belongs, to bring it to Jerusalem. And this is where we see our main passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were, guarding the, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. I mean, you can almost picture the scene here. There is excitement. There is anticipation. Finally, the ark is returning. Finally, it's going to be where it was always meant to be. They put it on this fresh new cart built specifically for this occasion. There is music and dancing and cheering. There are instruments hooting and tooting and clanging and banging. I mean, this is real worship. Finally, we're drawing near to God. We're doing it. But then verse 6 happens. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. You have to think in this moment, every, everything is going great. They're doing it. They're, they're worshiping. They're bringing the ark back. It's all going to be good from here until one of the oxen misses a step. 
And the ark jolts, and Uzzah reaches up to stabilize the cart, and boom, drops dead next to it. Now, if this is your first time reading this, I'm guessing that probably caught you off guard a little bit. It, it really kind of seems like Uzzah didn't do anything wrong. I'm sure in his mind he was doing something right. I mean, here they are trying to draw nearer to God, to, to worship him in a deeper way, and then God just smites this guy dead for keeping the ark from crashing to the ground. My guess is that 99% of you in this room think that punishment outweighs the crime, and the other 1% of you just aren't being honest with yourselves. I mean, this is what David thinks. Verse 8 says that David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So what exactly happened here? Well, with the nature of the tabernacle, this tent being their place of worship, being a portable place of worship, God knew that the ark of the covenant would have to move every now and then. So how had he instructed it to be done? I'm glad you asked. Exodus 25. Says God, gives the, God here gives the instructions for building the ark. He says, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Did you catch it? How was this ark to be moved? God said, carry it with poles on these rings because I am too holy for you to touch. But David doesn't take his cues from God's word. Who does he take his cues from? Who hauled the ark of the covenant on a cart? The Philistines. David hauled the ark the same way the Philistines, the enemies of his people did. That when they wanted the presence of God away from them, to get away from them, they put it on this cart and they send it back as quick as they could. And so I think what we see here, when it comes to worship, when it comes to drawing near to God, what I want you to hear is if you want to draw near to God, you have to draw near to God on God's terms. If you want to draw near to God, you have to draw near to God's terms. God is worthy of our worship in the ways that he has instructed us to worship. And I think when it comes to us and our hearts and our attitudes, our mindsets, I think there are really two things that get in the way of us worshiping God on God's terms. I think the first is that we often underestimate God's holiness. How often do the lines, you know, God, we want you here, we want to see you here, you're welcome here. How often do lines like that happen in our worship songs? Pretty frequently. But biblically speaking, most often when God shows up in his full glory, people are terrified. In Isaiah chapter 6, God appears before Isaiah. His presence fills the temple where Isaiah is. And Isaiah says, woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God shows up in this moment, and Isaiah is like, that's it, I'm dead, it's over, I'm too, God is too holy for me to be in his presence. But I think on top of not only underestimating God's holiness, I think we sometimes also overestimate our own goodness. Most people, if you ask them, if they're a good person, we'll say something along the lines of, yeah, I'm, a good, I'm a pretty good person. 
You know, I, I go to work and I take care of my family. I salute the flag. I pay my taxes. I try to be charitable. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm basically good. But I don't think that we're as good as we often think we are. Because even just a little sin contaminates us. It puts distance between us and God. And maybe you're thinking, you know, well, it's sure for some people, my sin's not that big. I mean, 99% of the time I do the right thing. I'm, I'm okay for the most part. But let me just use some food as an example. I want to bring to you some actual regulations from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. How many of you like apple butter? Of course, delicious. Who wouldn't? If there is less than a 12% mold count, or it averages less than four rodent hairs per 100 grams, you can still slather that all over your English muffin. Mushrooms, any of you pagans like mushrooms? I don't like mushrooms, and for good reason, as I'll tell you now, mushrooms can still be sold if there's an average of less than 20 maggots per 15 grams of mushrooms. 19 maggots? Eat those puppies up on a kebab. Coffee beans. For all of you bean juice lovers out there, coffee beans will be recalled if an average of 10% or more are insect infested, or if live insects are found in two or more immediate containers. One container of insects? Okay. One container, every other container, bugs, great. Two in a row, they're off the shelves, so you can rest in that piece if you want to. Now, I'm guessing that even a little bit of maggots, and you're still passing on the mushrooms, right? It's the same way with sin. Just a little bit contaminates us. We might think it's okay. You know, it's enough to, there's still enough good there to pass it off, to, to make good, and to, for us to be you know, used just like this food. I think all of us have looked for satisfaction in things other than God. We've known the right thing and chosen not to do it. We've known the wrong thing and done it anyway. We rarely even live up to our own expectations for ourselves, let alone God's standard. I mean, anybody have a perfect day this week? Anybody have a perfect day ever? And so you couple God's holiness and His perfection with our very evident non-goodness. And you can understand how very unworthy we are to stand in his presence. I think what we have to understand this morning is that there can be a danger in drawing near to God. Now, please hear me. I'm certainly not saying that you have to be perfect to worship God. If that were the case, this room would be empty every Sunday. But if you're harboring a cherished sin or casually waltzing into the presence of a holy God, if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and have no intention of obeying or listening, there's a danger. Cherishing sin in the presence of a holy God is deadly. Every person watching the ark being carted up to Jerusalem that day should have known better. Certainly David would have known better. But they thought that they could do things better than God had said. They let their worship be informed by the world rather than by the word. The world tries to tell us as Christians who God is and what he is like and what he will and will not expect and accept of us. The world will tell you that sin isn't sin, that evil isn't evil, that good isn't good. And it's not long after listening to that for a while that we begin to treat God like our luggage, throwing, up, throwing him up on an ox cart because it's easier. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Again, 1 Samuel 6, 9 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David, and said he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has done because of the ark of God. We meet this man, Obed-Edom, and we don't know much about him. But we learn from him what happens when you draw near to God on God's terms. He wasn't even an Israelite, but still God honors him and blesses him because of his worship of God, because he drew near in a way that honored him. When you trace out Obed-Edom, after, even after Second Samuel, you'll look at his story throughout Scripture. We see that when eventually the ark was moved, Obed-Edom wanted to go with it, to be its protector, to be the one who showed people what it means to draw near to God on God's terms. His family after him would take up this mantle, and God would bless them for generations because they chose to worship God in the way that God asked to be worshipped. And through Obed-Edom, David learns that God loves and blesses those who draw near to him on his terms. And so David draws near again. Once again, he moves the ark, but this time on God's terms. Again, it says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all the Israelites were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Again, we see this worship, this time of celebration and worship and excitement taking place as they carry the ark to Jerusalem. And I love that David isn't taking any chances here. Every six steps, they stop and sacrifice and worship. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, that's it. Made it a good way. Let's sacrifice. Let's worship. And David, in this moment, he is just cutting loose. I mean, this isn't just a simple toe-tapping church moment. This is Miss Beulah has taken the song over moment. There is shouting. There is blaring of horns. David is dancing in his underwear. And when we genuinely worship like this, and listen, I'm not telling you to dance and worship in your underwear in here. In fact, we prefer if you don't. But when we draw near to God in genuine worship, we see, as David does, a heart that is left with abandon, a heart that doesn't care what it looks like to the world as he worships his God, as he draws near to God in God's presence and God's terms. And when we do that, we see even when we do this, there might be those who don't understand. Verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord is entering the city of David, my call, daughter of Saul, again, this is David's wife, remember, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, When David returned home to bless his household, my call, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to my call, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. You see, it really wasn't about David's style of worship in this moment. It was about his heart. It didn't matter to him that even his own wife was embarrassed by his lack of kingly decorum. He had learned the blessing that comes from worshiping, from drawing near to God and the ways that he says to honor him. And so what I want want to leave you with, what I want to encourage you with this morning is really very simple. 
I want to encourage you to worship well. Now, maybe when you hear that, you think you have to have a great singing voice, raise your hands at all the right moments, you know, get caught up in the emotion of the moment. It's not what I mean. Worshiping is all about drawing near to God in the ways that honor Him with our hearts and with our lives, drawing near to Him in a way that He has called us to. So maybe you're in a season where you just don't feel like worshiping. You've been beat up, run over, dragged down. You just don't feel like worshiping God, but I want to encourage you to worship well anyway. Maybe you're like, I don't, I don't have a very good singing voice. I can hardly clap on the beat. Worship well anyway. Maybe you've screwed up before and you just don't feel like you're worthy of drawing near to a holy God. Worship well anyway. Because our story doesn't have to be Uzzah's story. Yes, God is holy, and yes, we are far from good. But Jesus has made the way for us to stand in the presence of a holy God and to worship him for what he has done. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins, our rebellion, those moments where we worshiped God on our terms, not his. Jesus bore the penalty on, our, on the cross for our Uzzah-like moments. And because of that, we worship him well. Jesus, what I love about the story of Jesus is that God and his holiness and his perfection didn't expect us to make it to his level. But instead, he came down to ours. That Jesus brought all of that holiness and perfection down and he put on human flesh. And he showed us what it means to live as God has called us to live. And he paid the penalty that should have been ours to pay. He took it upon himself that we might stand before a holy God covered by his grace and his mercy and worship him for what he has done. Let's pray that he could help us in that now. God, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for the opportunities that we have to worship. To worship here as we sing songs of praise to you, but to worship in our daily lives as we find these moments to recognize your beauty, to recognize your majesty, your holiness, your perfection. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend or seeing something in nature, an exchange we have with one of our children or our spouse, something that draws us in, that we get to see glimpses, the veil is parted, to see a little bit more of you, God, because of what you're doing in our lives. And it's in these moments of worship, God, that I pray that we would honor you in the ways that you have called us to honor you. That we would not let our worship be informed by the world. That we would not take our standards of what is good and right by the world. That we would look to your word to see how we are to worship you. Ultimately, God, we thank you for Jesus. Who rather than you expecting us to attain to your level of perfection, came down, you drew, you drew near to us, and you showed us the way. And that because Jesus took our penalty, our sin, upon himself, and died in our place, we have the opportunity to worship and to praise him as our king and as our God. Help us do that daily, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.